Hello and welcome to episode 62 of Major Revisions. I am Jeff Atkins from Virginia Commonwealth University and joining me as always is Grace Wilkinson from Iowa State University. Go Cyclones! And Jonathan Walter from the University of Virginia. Go Hoos! <laughs> so how it's has like, the Virginia football like, season been going? I was going to ask, is like that foot, it's football time right now, right? Is yeah. That, <laughs> okay, cool. I may have been out of the loop lately. Yeah, VCU doesn't have a football team. Well, I, I know that. <laughs> <laughs> He's not that out of the loop. Hence the out of the loop. Like, is that still a thing? Are we still doing college football? We're still doing it. Cool. So, uh, <laughs> Iowa played their first game of the season last week, and it went into triple overtime. So that's how well Iowa does at football. They they won triple overtime. What do you even do in triple overtime? Isn't because like you start like just doing like the weird rules, right? Like the clock goes down to like two minutes. I would and, assume like, both sides get a football and then you just run it at each other. Yeah, we kind of got to that point where like I was like, I'm gonna take a nap and hopefully there's the game is over when I wake up. I wasn't at there's the game to clarify. I was at home on my couch. Did did UVA win? Uh, we did, but I didn't watch it because. Uh, this new thing called the ACC network exists, but um, like the only the only provider that actually carries it right now is uh, one of the either DirecTV or Dish Network, one of those satellite people, um, and we have Comcast, so we don't get it. So, um, I mean, yeah, it's disappointing. Hey, it looks like we're first in the ACC. Cool. We're not last. And that's something. Why can't I get the score? Who the hell they even play? And what was the score? Uh, we played, played Pitt. It was thirty to sixteen or fourteen. One of those scores. One of those numbers. Hey, that's not. That's not bad. That's like a real school and everything. Yeah. No. <laughs> no. I mean, like, look, we're playing Old Dominion in a couple weeks, and like, no shade there. Um, but I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, shout out! Old Dominion's actually going to get slammed by a hurricane in like about eight hours. Yeah, like, y'all stay, y'all stay safe. Y'all stay safe in Norfolk. <laughs> Be cool. Come inland. Jeez Louise! Actually, yeah, I mean, this football schedule looks pretty. Oh man, UVA, dang. Okay. Yeah, we're like a, we're like a real team now. That's cool, man. Good for them. Yeah, our boy Broncos bringing it home. So beyond that, besides football, which of course we all love football, being the three of us, I don't know if our listeners do, but uh, that means it's fall, right? So what are you all looking forward to for fall? Oh man, pumpkin beer's out. Oh, yeah. I know that's not y'all's jam, but what a weird stake to claim. Yeah. Hey man, it's a weird flex, but I'm going to do it. (laughs) If they actually fermented it out of pumpkins and not like, you know, barley and wheat then I, well, I mean they do you put pumpkins in there too i mean i guess some people don't but like it, it the good one has pumpkins in it the bad ones taste too much like pumpkin pie which like i love pumpkin pie but like pumpkin pie in a drink comes off as like cloying and sweet and weird and then the other way it goes like too fruity it's not a not a good jam but also like apple cider stuff is going to be the rage this year i think i think the pumpkin spice the psl thing has like ebbed and that's thank goodness uh, i don't know man because i'm pretty basic though i gotta say (laughs) as a a small business bakery owner i was not looking forward to baking a bunch of pumpkin crap i will make apple cider crap but i will not do pumpkin stuff none of that (laughs) none of this giving the people what they want (laughs) this is the hill i'll die on whatever anyways good times speaking of, foot, speaking of football iowa state's playing louisiana monroe this are in a few weeks here yes they are schools. just saying okay sorry <laughs> looking at the iowa state football schedule <laughs> <laughs> yeah we don't John, like to take on controversial topics like pumpkin spice latte on this podcast we'll stick to football I, I like pumpkin spice latte john what are you looking forward to for fall i'm looking forward to going to iowa state hey we are looking forward to hosting you. Are you going to catch a football game? Uh, no, but I am going to meet some cool 
ISU bio faculty and grad students and postdocs and hang out with Grace. That's awesome. That's right. John will, for the third time, experience the wonders of Central Iowa, but in a new season. <laughs> Listen, I actually, at this point, I've the only the only season. Well, okay, I was kind of there at like the sort of junction of winter and spring. I was there in like mid March. Oh, I was about to say time. the junction of winter and spring, also known as February through about June. Oh yeah. Um, well, I was there Winter in June. And it was three. nice, right. uh, but yeah, maybe I'll maybe I'll hit all the seasons before you know. There you I go. Die. When you said seasons at first, like third season, I imagined it as like a TV show, and this is like the third season <laughs> of like Walter in the Midwest. And I was like, oh man, I need to binge watch season one and two, well, so I can be ready for season three. <laughs> Kind of along those lines, we are actually approaching our third birthday as a podcast. Oh, yeah, we are. Dang. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Very exciting. I'm... Three years. What I didn't... is our birthday? Uh, it's sometime it in October. I, you know, I forgot my wedding anniversary today, so I'm not going to go ahead and try to say what date something is. Is today your wedding anniversary? Oh, no, thank God. It's next week. Um... <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's like, it's, you can go. <laughs> I know. But after four years of marriage, at least Robert is just willing to know that I'm not going to remember that it's our wedding anniversary and tell me. So I appreciate that. But hey, uh, I mean, John, you must, you're coming up on two years. Coming up on two years. Yeah. And, and, and Jeff, you, you have been married uh, for than longer than us we, we kind of have a marital chrono sequence going on here i like that we do we do it's, it's a test space yeah if you forget dates and you can start doing manipulative experiments right oh god so uh, sorry oh goodness okay I'm looking at our podcast stats now. People still listen to the first episode, and then they drop off. I think people listen to the first episode, and they're like, eh, I don't know. You know, we might be like shows like Parks and Rec or something. Like, don't listen to our first couple episodes. Start somewhere in the middle, you know, where we have better writing, and you can learn to love us, and then go back to the first couple episodes. Yeah, maybe I should just, like, remove the first five from, like, the um, the RSS feed so they don't show up anymore. There you go. <laughs> people get the good stuff. Um, but guys, we, um, you know, we just got back from, from the ESA annual meeting in Louisville, Kentucky. I was only there for approximately 36 hours, but it was an awesome 36 hours. But, um, John, do you have any, any thoughts or any big takeaways and as a, as a quick ESA 2019 roundup? Um, I don't know. I feel weird saying this, but, um, the biggest thing that stuck with me about ESA this year, um, I had a really good time. Um, but like one of the like really rewarding things about it was, um, getting to interact with other scientists that actually like cited some of my work and to feel like the stuff that I was doing was having an impact on the field. Um, and that was really cool. And it feels kind of weird to say that, um, to anyone but my wife, because it feels a little bit like bragging, um, which I can do to my wife, but not to other people. Um, (laughs) but no, this came up, you and I were talking about like seeing your name, like cited in like a presentation that you weren't expecting it. Right. And like, yeah, you didn't even know. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, it yeah, feels really cool. It it's nice to know that you're not just screaming into the void sometimes. Yeah, With definitely. Publications. Yeah. How about you, Jeff? What was your highlight? I really like. I I was only there for one day, and um, because of scheduling issues, and you know, I left immediately and went to do field work like 800 miles away from there. But um, 
you know, I spent all day in the session that I was chairing that afternoon. Uh, Grace, one of your students, actually came by and introduced herself to me and, and said hello. And I thought that was really cool. Uh, a couple other people did too, like who would listen to the podcast and who I, you know, didn't know beforehand. And so that's always that's always fun for me. Um, and then I, you know, the session before me, like I, a, the, the two or three remote sensing things are always like on one day and at ESA, and that's cool. But the real take home good thing for me this year was that. ESA finally nailed, well, I don't want to say nailed, but they did a pretty good job with the poster session this year. And, um, you know, they had a venue where it was easily accessible. It was well attended. It was thrown in with some food, even though, like, the food, like, disappeared the second day and, like, no one knew where to track the food down, um, which was a little weird. Um, but, um, they finally got that. And in the last few that I had been to, like the poster session was always relegated to like an afterthought. And, you know, there's a lot of like really young scientists in there. There were some people from community colleges. There were some undergrads, recent high school students in there, like presenting posters. And there was also like some big name people, you know, like giving posters too, which is something you see at, e um, at AGU and other conferences, but not as much at ESA. And um, I think that was really cool because it allowed people to kind of mix more. And it was much more well attended. Um, even given like kind of the low attendance overall at the conference, you know, proportionally the poster session was well attended and was like a highlight for me. And it was really cool. Like I love poster sessions anyway, so you get to talk to people and get to learn about research and it's a much more intimate, um, conversational, you know, part of the conference. And that was really well done, I think this year. And, um, you know, hats off to them. It's, it didn't feel like ESA was totally overscheduled. And so they did pretty decent job with that that's awesome yeah i gotta say it, so i didn't attend but i also have two small highlights from esa because uh, of course you know you can follow these conferences people have gotten so great at tweeting them and so one of my first highlights was the mysterious like yellow power symbol at the end of the esa 2019 <laughs> hashtag that we all collectively could not freaking figure out did we ever get an answer? No, I spent so much time Googling. Oh my gosh, no idea. And then number two, my second favorite, was that there would seem to be no mass controversy that spilled out. Like, they, they seem to do much better with the managing the culture of the meeting this year because there was no major controversies or major missteps that the Twitterverse was talking about. So. It was mostly the coffee and, tw and food thing. Oh, yeah. No, I definitely got the, the picture about the coffee. I almost sent coffee there. Like, seriously, wow. Y'all look to be struggling. Yeah, I mean, there was the whole, like, issue about the, um, you know, proposed um, fee to submit a talk abstract yes. that they eventually right. walked back. Um, so... Uh, it wasn't it wasn't all perfect um i'll certainly say that but um you know there as far as i know there like were no talks advocating human population control this year so there's that yeah, yeah that's that's you know baby stuff <laughs> yeah <laughs> well so besides that and speaking of controversy and opinions and things that maybe segues into our topic for today, which is a recent commentary that came out in Nature, right? A, a short comment on statistical versus mathematical modeling. And I guess the first thing I will just say, but then I really want you all to take it, is I did not find it short. <laughs> I found it short in tone. Yeah, that, that was false advertising. Um, yeah, so yeah, this is um, and from Andrea Saltelli from Nature Communications. Um, this one's a little bit, I think, outside of what we typically talk about because it's not a strictly ecology or even remotely environmental science style uh, article since, you know, Nature Communications is open to pretty much any discipline. Um, this one's kind of an interesting one for us, but it brings up a lot of, of points that create discussion, I think. And, and, and it did catch hold there for a little while when it came out. Was it? Yeah. Um, gosh, August 27th, only a few days ago, actually. Um, you know, it, it was quite the Twitter firestorm there for, for a while. And I think kind of rightly so. 
um, not because the article itself is necessarily right, but I think there's some interesting points in there. But uh, John, you were particularly interested in this one. Well, yeah, I mean, I do a lot of statistics and modeling, and so I feel like I have a pretty vested interest in this. And um, I really, I really don't agree with it. Um, I mean, it's hard not to agree with the, you know, premise that, you know, mathematical modeling should be careful um, about, you know, what it's doing and, and you know, pay as much uh, attention to kind of what, what analogs it has to the reproducibility crisis and statistics, right? Like, we want good scientific practice everywhere, you know, across disciplines and approaches. Um but for me, it really doesn't do a good job of capturing um, the, the, the field. And I think there's sort of like a, a fundamental flaw in logic um, that it makes. And, you know, at the beginning of the paper, it, uh, it basically, you know, says that, well, you know, mathematical modeling is not a, um, a unified field like statistics is. Um, I'm not sure yeah, I entirely that? agree with that either because there are, there are really different statistical traditions that um, exist across ecological fields that have different terminology, different you know standards, different ways of doing things. Um, modeling is, is, is just the same. But around the end of the paper, it starts talking about mathematical modeling as a field uh, and, you know, things that sort of like the the field of mathematical modeling should do but it's not a field statistics i mean exists as a field but it's not just a field applied statistics in individual um subdisciplines is not really a field i it has more of an or overarching um you know sort of um set of practices and and, and stuff like that, you know, given that statistics itself is a discipline. Um, but I, I, yeah, I just really feel like it is, it doesn't under, it doesn't show a good understanding of the way that mathematical modeling is applied across different sub-disciplines, the different traditions that there are for, um, you know, doing sensitivity analyses and things of that nature. And maybe not all fields do it well. Maybe ecology is a field that doesn't habitually do it as well as some other fields. But um, yeah, it just, I don't know. I feel, I felt like it went from some, I I feel like it made some gross overgeneralizations about the field. Um, and I, and I don't think that they're, that they're well-founded. Right, so, so I want to back up, like the, because I'm, you know, listening to you and then and then kind of looking at this again. Like I'm trying to think about like what is the actual thesis. <laughs> Thank you. Frames this argument because there there is the initial problem that you point out where they say that st you know, statistics is a field, you know, capital big S statistics versus little s statistics as a tool and a framework, and then they say that, and then mix them up completely the rest of the paper, right? So it seems like. I'm going to take a stab at this and you tell me if this is the working thesis or not that you're using that it, it centers from this idea that statistics is mired in this issue of you know, replication crisis and that there is some issue with the field of statistics. I would argue that point that that's not true. It's not the field of statistics. It's actually the application of statistics in other fields like psychology, sociology in particular, or more apropos the social sciences or economics as well. Um, it's that application, not statistics as a field itself. That's one of my issues. But that mathematical modeling does not have this issue because it's not a, quote, discipline. Yet we need guidelines for mathematical modeling. Does that work as a thesis for you guys? Because I'm rereading this thing like three or four times and having a hard time figuring out what the actual focus is. Yeah. I... Go ahead, Grace. No, I that's 
that that certainly makes a, a better from my first take when I read this a couple of days ago, um, I, I, I think erroneously, but just sort of came away from like, I don't understand this writing style. The writing style is a whole nother bag of worms that we should talk about. But um, <laughs> I like, I don't understand this, but is he mostly just saying garbage in, garbage out? Because duh. Um, and so I, I think I, I like this evolution of we're talking about and trying to identify the thesis here because clearly that wasn't it, but I really wasn't understanding what the main drive, like what, what, it's a comment, but what am I supposed to take away from this? So I'm, I'm glad you all interpreted it much more deeply than I, so I can learn. I mean, I think the, Jeff, the one thing that I would clarify, at least to, you know, to my understanding is that, um, the, the author is basically claiming that mathematical modeling is subject to a lot of the same problems that, um, statistics, uh, or its application to particular fields is, but it's not yet kind of widely recognized in the scientific community. Wait, the problems in modeling or the problems in statistics? The, 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 pro the problems in modeling are not yet widely recognized, even though there are analogous problems to the ones in statistics. Okay. Um, I think that's what the author is trying to say. Does uh, it bother you that they don't define what the problems with statistics are? Yes. Because like the immediately jump in after that talking about even questioning the notion of significance. Well, that's one of the fucking primary problems with statistics is that significance is arbitrarily defined on base, based on the conversation Fisher had in 1926. He was like, nah, one out of 20 seems good. <laughs> The whole thing is a house of cards. And that's well, like the thing that you want to hang on is the concrete fact, like significance. We have to hang on to that. Well, and but that's maybe only one flavor of statistics, right? Yeah, but no, no, that's fair. That's fair. Like, I mean, yeah, he apparently in this in this worldview, statistics is only parametric. Right. You know, what's the non-Bayesian people? What am I called? A frequentist? Yeah, Which, it's a frequentist. I, I totally don't disagree like, with you. What am I again? And this, this significance, there's a, yeah. No, sorry, I'm derailing your point. Go on, go on. Keep ranting. No, no, that's just my point. Is that, like, it, it's it's a straw man argument where the straw man's poorly constructed and not even well defined. Absolutely. And so, like, yeah, you, modeling should have a framework, but, like, you if you're going to write an essay, I feel like you should tell me why you, you want it. It shouldn't. It had, it, this is not a self-evident point. And I don't, I mean, I would quibble. I, I would I would really more than quibble. Um, you know, at, at least from my experience as an ecologist, that you know in in general we're not doing an adequate job of sensitivity analyses that we're not doing an adequate job of interrogating assumptions at least on the model development side i th i think that there are mm -hmm. absolutely you know poor applications of models but i think the 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 burden of developing a new model and presenting it in the literature and you know getting your um you know colleagues to accept and believe in it is is pretty high i mean no one believes your model you know right <laughs> okay okay so I can delete this if you don't want to derail it in this way, but maybe a better question before we get into like the mathematical framework is, is what do we see currently as the problem with model applications and statistical applications in environmental sciences slash ecology right now? Like, like you guys, what would you say is your biggest one or two issues? That's a question for John. I think the biggest issue is a poor understanding of assumptions underlying both both statistical tests and of models. Um, 
and so sort of you know improper applications and improper conclusions owing to a lack of that lack of um you know full understanding of of what the assumptions of um of different approaches and different models are yeah i think i I would build on that um from what john said in the the um the drawing of conclusions and oh gosh it was another paper that was recently in nature about this and p-values they talked about effect size that it was really well laid out but just the um the drawing the conclusion of if it's not significant it's therefore there's no effect Mm. um and that just because they're of this arbitrariness of the the p-value threshold just like you were talking about that that's somehow some gold standard and um you know p-values mix magnitude and precision in one number and that's really freaking weird and that just because there isn't um a significant something isn't significant doesn't mean that there isn't an effect no, absolutely. We should definitely be, you know, that's one of the ways, you know, talking about statistical crisis and like, you know, social sciences, the, the, the moving towards focusing on the effect size rather than just significance. Um, and yeah, I, I remember that article. I think that's like actually was one that we had talked about talking about it at another point too. Man, we should have brought that one in here as well. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it, focusing like on actual, you can have a significant effect or significant result and it not have any effect. Like you said, it's just not focusing on that is really moving things ridiculous way and it opens things up to p-hacking right the idea of manipulating statistical analysis to try to get the p-value just under the significance level and i think there's that statistical analysis paper that looks at the distribution of p-values and finds that they're heavily skewed you know and towards 0.05 right like the distribution is like really strong just under that threshold <laughs> right like in a way that it would not make any sense and i think it's detrimental to science because like you should the the the, the hunt for the 0.05 is, is pointless if you're not actually figuring out what the actual effect of what you're doing is because that's what is something or one way to kind of tell you more of what's actually going on in things and that's not i never learned that in a statistics class I mean, maybe that's something that's taught now, but like I had to go out and learn how to do that on my own. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think sort of an extreme of that I recently encountered um, without being too specific about the details, but it was with a colleague and we, we were talking about a project and this colleague, you know, we were talking about study design and things like that. And they said, well, how are we going to calculate a p-value out of that study design? And it was a, it was an interesting moment because I realized we were approaching it from a very different perspective. That they they had a valid perspective as well because they're thinking about like how are we going to get this freaking thing published, Grace? Um, you know, but and and that was their approach to that. Um, so that was a particularly stark illustration of I think these issues that we're talking about, at least from the statistical side. Sorry, we've gotten away from mathematical modeling. <laughs> No, that's okay. We can come back to it. This is our show. We do that's right. Okay, so uh, yeah, I was, I was just, I was just kind of curious to get what you guys think. About. I also want to add, I think another issue with that we face is what Brian McGill's talked about a little bit too—the idea of statistical machismo and just trying to wow you with my crazy, intense statistical model, whatever it is, to get something through. Absolutely. And, and and maybe also on the other side of that is is using that as a gatekeeping or a smokescreen to um, using that type of language and that, that sort of machismo attitude to um, obscure and so that others can't understand the assumptions or the underlying processes or the things that you're trying to do. Um, because it, it, statistics and mathematical modeling are not simple things. I'm absolutely not making that claim. But I think they are not as mysterious many of those processes for many people if people took a better time actually communicating them. And there's some really awesome data scientists and experts out there that are doing a really good job of trying to break down those barriers. So kudos to them because sometimes these things don't need to be as hard as they're made out to be. 
I actually, um, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think that most, um, well, I think that there's a, sub, a substantial fraction of, of scientists who are extremely, um, do extremely sophisticated quantitative work and want, are, are a little bit frustrated that their work isn't better understood, but really want people to understand it. Um, and it's actually, I think, a sign of someone who doesn't actually know what they're doing, um, when, like, when their, um, when their theory or statistics is really opaque. Yeah, that's a really great point. And that's kind of, I I can imagine that's really frustrating, um, as someone who's doing that type of very sophisticated modeling or statistical work. Um, but then it, it's uh, something as scientists we all encounter at some level with whatever audience we're trying to communicate to. They're not going to be the level that we want them at, right? So to be a good communicator, we have to meet our audience. We have to, we have to say and do the things our audience needs to hear and not the things we want to tell them. But yeah, it's also a good litmus test too, I think as John points out. All right, so, so pulling this back here then, what are the issues more applicable like directly to modeling then? Like, what do we think are like, okay, let's, let's, go, let's assume we need a framework. What is our framework meant to address? Like, what is the problem with mathematical modeling right now? I don't model anything, so that's, I'm going to throw that back at y'all. Well, so, so one that the, the, the paper does, in fairness, bring up is understanding the sensitivity of the model to, uh, you know, to different parameter values um which i i think is i think is valid um you know i i guess i kind of disagree with with their claim or at least i don't i don't see evidence in my experience for their claim that um at least ecology radically misunderstands the sensitivity of models or the sensitivity of of, of model output to parameter variability um can you give a real plain language summary of what you mean by the sensitivity to parameter variability yeah so in in any model um you know let's let's imagine this as being like a pretty simple um like you know process-based um model of how a plant grows um you know it's gonna have some parameters that reflect um how good it is at acquiring nutrients it's gonna have some parameter that reflects how good it is at you know turning sunlight into sugars and um you know those sugars into biomass Uh, and all of those different parameters matter to the outcome you know how big does a plant get in a certain time given the environmental conditions that it's grown under um and so you know what we mean by sensitivity is um you know basically you know as you as you change those different parameter values um you know potentially independently um or you know in in conjunction with one another so they're correlated in in particular ways um like what influence does that have on that that outcome of the model so how does one estimate like how sensitive or you know how prone to bias or just you know how influential a given you know parameter variable is like in a model well, typically, you know, you would you would vary those parameters and um, you know and see what happens. And you know, there are different um, you know ways to you know approach quantifying that variability. Um, you mentioned bias, and um, you know that would probably imply you know some kind of validation against real world plants. 
um, you know, to see, uh, well, does this model, you know, produce something like what they do? So I, I feel like one of the issues, I'm just curious, because like there is some, you know, ecological stuff that's brought up in this as examples later in the, the article, but um, do, do you think, maybe it's my own bias towards our own field, that we're less prone to some of these crazy lack of validations as compared to other fields like i'm thinking about like um you know a lot of the economic models that dealt with the um you know the most recent economic crisis like the recession 2008 09 like a lot of those were built on these inflation models and housing price models that were built on like just constant linear growth and you know never factored in contrition or anything or contraction and so like they ended up missing a housing bubble because they were built on you know, they weren't tested under different scenarios and therefore, you know, overestimated how like derivatives markets worked and everything. Like, there was no ever, no analysis, like you said, modulating values or changing things to be able to test where that parameter space is. But do you think that like ecology and environmental science more writ large has a longer history of that? Maybe we're not as prone to this issue as some other fields? Well, I think other fields, um, and and I, I could be wrong here, but you know, given some things that I've read um, about economics in particular, you know, they have a long history of using um, mathematical models based on equilibrium assumptions, and those models are, you know, some really form some very fundamental paradigms in that field. I think ecology, by contrast, um, has a, a long history of skepticism of mathematical modeling. You know, the, the nuts and bolts of our field um, is really, uh, you know, field ecology and, you know, trying to understand a particular system at a particular place at a particular period in time. And um, although there are a number of foundational models that do contain, um, you know, equilibrium assumptions and, and, and things of that nature. I think that uh, we've been very quick, um, you know, perhaps quicker than other fields to, um, you know, to question those, uh, those assumptions and to evaluate other um, modeling frameworks um, like, you know, agent and individual-based modeling that um, and, and stochastic um, processes that, uh, you know, incorporate variability, um, you know, don't necessarily rely on equilibrium assumptions. Um, and, uh, you know, have, you know, their, their own, um, you know, set of, you know, set of, um, you know, potential shortcomings, but, um, you know, but also, um, yeah, I, I, I just, I think that our field, um, is, is pretty skeptical of, of mathematical models as a whole. And that might be a good thing. Maybe not for my career, but, <laughs> but for the field. Are you calling so, yourself the optimist? You know, it, and, and, and I've joked about this in past episodes too, that there's, you know, the model versus field work mode of science. And like, I, you know, I don't remember this quote and I don't even remember where it's from. I think it may be from the ecological detective where it's like, you know, basically like field science without models is something akin to like stamp collecting. And then, you know, models without science though is alchemy. Um, I think I messed that up because I think it's the Rutherford quote that like all science is either physics or stamp collecting, but whatever. Like the point is like the two things are like intrinsically linked, right? Like you go out and you collect the data and you analyze the data, but like what you want to do with that data is to build a model to understand something new about the world. And the two things are not, you know, sides of a coin or they're not like opposing football teams like Iowa state or, William and Mary, or whoever Iowa State was, was it Louisiana Monroe? Um, I got a friend who's got a job there. Uh, but, uh, um, you know, they're not 
and this to their credit like this is something brought up in this article like you should involve you know statisticians or, or modelers as part of teams right like maybe not just like write them at the end be like hey can you run a you know sensitivity analysis for me on this or can you run like a power analysis let me know how many samples i need to collect like maybe include people who actually have that know-how from the get-go who can help you design better experiments and who can help you you know analyze things like from the get-go instead of having to post hoc everything it's funny that you bring that up there's a statistical consulting um it here on, at Iowa State, the, some of the stats grad students can actually earn their TA ships by serving in the stats consulting team. And, no way. That's awesome. Yeah. And um, I, I think they're constantly frustrated when, um, you know, people come in and do exactly like you just said. And they're like, hey, when you're designing your study or writing your proposal, feel free to come use our consultation services then. It's just. <laughs> and not after the fact. Like, we'll help you dig out of this hole, but let's make it be a lesson learned. Yeah, that's that's probably the real problem with modeling and, and statistics and science is that it's just, it's treated like a thing that you do after the fact. You know, like yeah. I started having my students like, no, we're going to make fake data and, and we're going to analyze it just to see. Like, we'll throw in some real-world values, and we're going to analyze it to build, like, you know, like, we're going to run the test that we're going to run on the real data before we collect any data and see where this fails. Um, so... And see what that... Oh, go ahead. No, so along those lines, though, so how, how, how is that best combated? And I'd be really interested in your all's opinions. Like, should ecologists start doing pre-registration of their studies? Should we have more rigorous review of the statistical methods in big proposals? A little less hand waving, a little more detail. Like what what's the solution? Definitely yes to pre registration. I don't know about proposals though. I could see that going either way, good or bad. But definitely yes to pre registration. I don't see a downside to pre registration, honestly. We've done it with the project that we've on our own and that includes pre registration of modeling studies. I don't, apparently that's unheard of. No, it, it should, it shouldn't be. So yeah. the, the one thing I will say is that if you are trying to develop a new statistical approach or a new model, pre-registration is hard because you don't always like, because there's sort of like an interaction between, um, you know, sort of like the data or the plausibility of the output and the procedure that I, I don't think it's impossible, but I think doing, doing a very strict pre-registration is, is a challenge. But I think that, you know, anytime that you have, um, you know, it's kind of like established you know what you what you want to do certainly if you're working with an existing model um and you know reparameterizing it for a new system or a new application like i think that's totally pre-registerable yeah okay yeah it probably couldn't be a strict pre-registration you're right but i mean it, it, it's a potent, it, it's a way forward, I think, that could be adapted to work maybe better with a modeling framework. It's clearly right. something that comes out of more of like a clinical well, double-blind model. We live in an ecological anarchy, right? Like we don't have some government overlord that would in, in, you know, say now everyone must pre-register. But it certainly, it seems like in many situations, could benefit from a shift in the culture towards that. Yeah, and there there are uh, there is at least one journal that I know of because um, I just happened to be looking at it the other day. Um, Ecology and Evolution um, does like pre-registered reports. Oh, they do. Yeah. Sure, they charge a lot of money. They, uh, it's like it's like two th little under two grand for the OA fees. Um, so oh, it's okay. so it's not astronomical for, um, it's not a nature journal. My bad, BES. I'm sorry, British Ecological Society. You're right. It's only 1950. That's fair. In I, my head, it was 2800. I, wow, we have a whole other episode that we could come up with about publication fees and models and journals. 
Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, I can, want to launch into something right now, and it's just not the place. I can bitch about this all day long. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, putting that aside for a moment, because it's going to be a fire episode. I want to down. Yeah, I, I want to ask um, both of you if you had this author of this piece. I mean, clearly, it's launched some discussion. If you had the author of this piece in the room with you, um, what is there a question you'd want to ask or a point you'd want to make? Just to is sort of summarize okay and wrap this up. Right. Well, sure. <laughs> Who hurt you? <laughs> How do you feel about the active voice versus the passive voice? Yeah. That, okay. Oh, yeah. Active versus passive voice could be another one. Do you have a, a, a real question for him, John? Oh, no. Um, let me think. I'm going to defer to John. I mean, this isn't a specific question, but I think... Um, you know, based based on this person's affiliation, um, which is the Center for the Study of the Sciences and the Humanities, um, I I think that this is what would fall under like sort of science studies or like meta science, um, which you know kind of often like brings some kind of like social science approaches to um thinking about how science is done and i i think that i would like to partly because i'm not as confrontational in person as i you know am on a podcast that this person will probably never <laughs> listen to um uh, i think i'd like them tomorrow <laughs> <laughs> i think i'd like to try and understand like what you know what the intellectual background of this person is and um a little bit more get more insight into where they're coming from because i like i disagree with this i think that it is a it is a take on science like on s science um that is not sufficiently nuanced um but i don't think it's altogether wrong um, I don't like the language in it. I think it's flowery and vague and impre yeah, imprecise. Um, but, you know, um, that's an aesthetic judgment more than it is a, a judgment on, you know, the quality of um, the thoughts behind it. And it's possible that this person actually has some good things to say. Yeah, I, I'm envisioning myself going on a deep dive, learning about postmodern science this evening. I was so. going to ask that about that, like what you guys thought was on postnormal science. Yeah, I don't know what normal science is. Little I don't either, but I, I looked up the definition, and apparently, it's when facts are uncertain, values in dispute, stakes are high, and the decisions are urgent. Which actually sounds like a great tagline for like a nerdy movie. <laughs> <laughs> I like the Wikipedia article where it says that Thomas Kuhn said that normal science is what most scientists do all the time and what all scientists do most of the time. <laughs> the scientific knowledge progresses through socially constructed paradigm shifts. Oh my gosh, I feel a, a deep dive of navel gazing and who I am as a scientist and what science is coming on. This is going to be great. Just in time for the weekend. Yes. Post normal science. This is what we can do when I'm in Iowa. Perfect. Yes. Yeah, you guys need to record a podcast when you're up there. We did it last time we were there. We did. Perfect. Maybe we'll record Apparently. a drunk ecology. <laughs> do it. That would be great. With video. Oh boy. <laughs> Okay, okay, actually, there is in this Wikipedia, buried deep in here, a section on post-normal science and mathematical modeling, spelled the British way. And in relation to mathematical modeling, post-normal scientists suggest a participatory approach. We talked about that a little bit. That models to predict and control the future are replaced by models to map our ignorance and the future. So it's less about finding the answer and more about understanding what we don't know and mapping uncertainty. 
Wow, that sounds like a PhD. Exploring really metaphors embedded in the model. I don't really know what metaphors embedded in the model means. I would ask about that point. Yeah, I don't, yeah. But if that's actually real language that people in this field use, then I kind of thought that it was just this person being kind of douchey. Ditto. There's a couple of points where I, the first read of this, I was like, dang, this guy's douchey. But there's also like some throwaway stuff in here that I just don't get. Like closing line about positivism and relativistic or positivistic and relativistic philosophy. Like, dude, are you just like throwing out some stuff that you know now? Be like, I'm so smart. Look at the huge range of stuff that I just covered. It's so smart. There's just a little bit of like a self-congratulatory thing through all this. I don't like, but just saying. Well, it is a nature journal. Yeah. Uh, Which I'd like to point out. The publication fee for Nature Communications is $5,200. Yeah, it's filthy. As opposed to Ecology and Evolution. I'm really sorry, Ecology and Evolution. I didn't know that. (laughs) I'm sure they feel personally victimized. I do like the British Ecological Society. Really nice folks over there. (laughs) Well, with that, I feel us wrapping up. It's It's probably time. Yeah. It is that magical time. So you can catch us, um, on all of the very your favorite podcast platform, I, I think we're pretty much up on all of them at this point. Um, you can also, of course, catch us on um, Twitter at major underscore revisions. Um, you can also find us at our, our website that's in our Twitter bio. You can find us on Instagram, although I'm pretty sure we've only posted like three pictures, so more soon. And um, as well as contact us through our Gmail. Did I miss any? Also, I don't think that ecology and evolution is even connected to the British Ecological Society. It's just a, it's just a Wiley journal. I don't know why I thought that. I'm just gonna <laughs> shut up. <now. laughs> I can't keep track of all these goddamn journals. True that. All right, and with that, we'll see you in the next episode. Post-normal Take care. Science, episode sixty something. Oh, kill me. 